Welcome to episode two of season two of our podcast show, Get Wise, a show dedicated to discussing emerging trends in the cybersecurity and legal landscape and providing unique industry insights. My name's Dan and with me is Mariam and joining us today is guest speaker, Denny Wan, a recognized cybersecurity risk expert. He provides thought leadership in threat modeling, policy-based mitigation strategy development, cybersecurity investment and process integration design. In this issue of the podcast, we'll be focusing on two aspects. So firstly, we'll be exploring the fascinating notion of anticipating cyber attacks, formerly known as threat modeling in the cybersecurity sphere. And secondly, we'll discuss how there's a lack of investment by businesses, companies and organizations into cybersecurity and whether this disregard to cybersecurity is a cultural phenomenon or if it's due to some other underlying factor and why this spending on cybersecurity is essential based on consequences and penalties. Thank you, Dan. So yeah, firstly, I just wanted to say hi, Jenny. How are you going? And thank you for joining us. Very good. Yeah, Dan and Marianne, thank you uh, for inviting me to speak to your audience. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. No worries. So just launching straight in. So Dan basically introduced the concept of threat modeling. And I just wanted to help get our listeners up to speed about what that actually is. So we've sort of curated a bit of a definition, but we wanted to check with you and get a maybe a more nuanced understanding of what threat modeling actually is. So my understanding is that threat modeling is a structural process through which IT experts firstly identify certain cybersecurity threats or risks. They identify the seriousness of those risks and then seek to mitigate them and come up with solutions. What's your take on threat modeling and how can you expand on that definition for us? Well, great. Thanks very much for the question. It's a great question and it can be a very convoluted answer. And uh, certainly I don't claim to be an expert in this subject, but I have a few thoughts I'd like to share with your audience, I may. I would say threat modeling is really such a fundamental requirement for existence, right? And I would start with saying that certainly a sound structure approach is essential for any kind of problem-solving exercise, including threat modeling. Now, at a very basic level, I think you agree with me, survival in life pretty much depends on ability to do threat model. And this is probably what we might call animal instincts or fight or flight response. Now, these have been fine-tuned uh, over millions of years of human evolution. Uh, we won't be here if our ancestor wasn't able to assess the threat. Uh, they will get eaten uh, <laughs> way before now. And some, a lot of those did. I do understand, of course, in the context of this uh, conversation, uh, we're not talking about humans existing evolution, but more in more specific uh, technical context of cyber risk, particularly, which is increasing our interest to a much broader uh, population in the com community. And it is interesting because uh, cyber risk is a relatively new class of threat. And I might add, it's man-made. Unlike natural threats like bushfire, flood, and of course, war. Now, war occurs man-made, but nature of war also very different from cyber threat. And of course, there's a term of cyber war. The difference is the technology involved are quite different and quite the uh, 
key difference is the speed of evolution of the technology and the attack method and the motivation, most importantly, behind the attack. So I won't go into the technical discussion of the technical consideration in this conversation, but I will probably explore the methodology for uh, quantifying risk and really help it, you know, people to make the fight or flight decision. You know, don't pick on the fight that you don't think you can win, right? So you have a nation state coming after you, but well, probably time to run, right? And so therefore, you know, particularly from a business context, it, it, I would well, uh, most people argue that this is a matter of common business sense and the practical business management challenge, really you got no choice. And of course, our national leader explained that to us. And as I mentioned before, I don't call myself uh, an expert in that space, but I, what we'd we'll rather do is draw attention to your audience or some of the global standard, uh, one of which I think I well received is the NIST uh, Risk Management Framework. Uh, NIST, it could stand for the National Institute of standard technology, the US-based government agencies, really for leading this uh, development standard, uh, particularly US context. And one particular uh, standard risk management frameworks uh, have a special uh, number, it's called SP833, so I encourage your audience to uh, look it up. And uh, I want to pause here and just say quickly that what this uh, mission is, is to stimulate innovation foster industrial competitiveness and improve life quality. So I do encourage your audience to uh, check out that particular documentation. Yeah, just before we move on to the next question, I just wanted to say thanks for that analogy because the same way we prepare our houses or our systems in the cases of floods or bushfires or war, like you mentioned, our cybersecurity systems and our organizations need to take the appropriate steps. So I think that was a really great analogy. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's such an interesting perspective to think of it as something that just comes natural to us in terms of a fight or flight response. So in terms of cybersecurity threat modeling itself, who are the pioneers of that school of thought and what are the origins of threat modeling there? Well, this is a really, really big topic. It's like the, the cloud type topic. And certainly I wouldn't want to suggest I'm an expert uh, qualified to explain the topic. And But when I would probably start responding to the question is just say that I do have some uh, qualification in IT security audit, and particularly in a global standard issued by the International Standard Organization, also common uh, references ISO. And that particular standard is ISO 27001, uh, covering information security management standard. And uh, so, so this is really where I uh, build most uh, most my uh, understanding in in this area. And uh, similar to my previous response, is I um, wanted to introduce another acronym like NIST, uh, but in this case called the MITRE, AT and CK framework. And uh, what this framework is designed uh, to do and is uh, gaining a lot of popularity because of clarity and the strength of this analysis and it's designed for analyzing the tactics, techniques and procedure used by cyber attackers. And uh, one of the methods used in that framework uh, is often referred to as the unified kill chain. Like I just imagine a few movies going to be made uh, based on that uh, picture that is coming 
kill your system, right? And that's exactly what they're trying to explain to the general public that this mystical people in the hoodie um, in front of the computer uh, is not always like that. It's actually quite organized. And uh, you follow the analysis model, that's the acronym A, T, T, and C, K, uh, which is uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures. It helps one to really understand and pack and demystify those uh, really unrealistic obese teenagers in the in the basement attacking you all day long. And I want to closing, just not going to explain the framework, but simply highlight one key attribute and uh, aspect of that framework. And uh, that framework described an ordered arrangement of 18 different and unique attack phases. So it's a one number of steps, which may occur in end-to-end cyber attacks. And it covers activities both outside and within what we call the defined network, an enterprise network. You know, basically the bit of network people cares about and want to uh, protect. And what the framework helped to do is analyze the Q-chain in a useful way to conceptualize the cyber threat nature to assist in the development of appropriate defense strategies. Thank you for that. So would I be correct in my understanding that these techniques or these systems are basically designed to get into the mind of a cyber criminal and basically figure out the problems or the things they are targeting and then therefore finding the answer to that problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so actually the other wrong is uh, the framework to describe and get into the mind attacker to kind of unpack the trade and mm-hmm. uh, how they would go about developing a strategy uh, against the target. Of course, some targets are better uh, protected and more resilient by government agencies and in the moment that uh, shop around the corner. And so the framework, as I mentioned, uh, covered 18 different stages. Not all the stages will be executed in every single attack on the kill chain. Uh, but, you know, following that bouncing for 18 uh, stages uh, might just help someone just to think I'm a little corner shop, you know, there's not much to take, but they might just, uh, you know, it's like you're stealing a 30-year-old car just for the joyride. You're bringing real code that they can sell it. And so both, unfortunately, there's a lot more old car being stolen than a very expensive car because it's just so much easier. So we've established that threat modeling is a super important service and something that organizations really need to get a hold of and make sure they can protect themselves. In your experience, do consumers usually come to you when setting up their security systems or after they've already become a victim of a cyber threat? Yeah, I think in both and often, unfortunately, uh, people really pay attention after they suffer a cyber attack and uh, particularly they uh, having some very uncomfortable questions being asked at them. It is a very fair question. And and unfortunately, I have one of those people like to spoil a party and how would they put to you that uh, the reality is a lot of organizations are not particularly interested in thinking about the threat modeling. And this is things like geeks like myself may like to talk about and get people excited in a dinner party and, and people start rolling their eyes to say, well, you know, what's the weather? Pretty good, huh? So, uh, what they do realize, you had mentioned early on, uh, in the cybersecurity uh, is imperative for a lot of measures must deal with whether they had a technical uh, background or, or not. And so to bridge a gap between what the geeks like to talk about, threat modeling, you know, kill chain, and, and what a business manager uh, needs to really sit down and say, I, I only have so much time, I've got a real business running, and I can only spend so much money because if I, my business is not here, then why would I care anyway? And one of the tools uh, that Bridge that uh, conceptual gap and those conversations, both are important, is uh, audit. 
An audit is not a strange concept. An audit did not come from the technology space, come from the financial management space. So that's a financial audit, you know, we all had to do our tax return most of us. So that's a kind of way we understand that, yeah, you better get your paper right. And so the idea of tax return is sustainable. And I mentioned before, I have some uh, training and certification in the ISO standard, and that is often the standard used for security uh, audit. And the role of the audit uh, is a mansion tool in essence uh, for mansion, uh, and that's including business board uh, for larger organizations uh, to help management to really understand the risk posture. And most importantly, is to help them to prioritize the business decisions. And I want you to pause and draw attention to a concept that a lot of people might be surprised in in saying that the decision to take note immediate action is in fact a common response and also a legitimate decision, which is very different from doing nothing or we actually most call them just heading the center approach. And uh, unfortunately, that's more common than we like to. Uh, so that's got a difference that if someone go to negative asset to understand the risk posture, whether using audits, threat modeling, or a number of mentioned tools they might use, and they come to the conclusion that it's not the right time to do anything because you know you might cost more harm than than good. That's why sometimes insurance and necessary evils that uh, you just simply can't put a plug and just say you know uh, we don't want to take any risk. Uh, life is about uh, taking risk. Uh, means minding harm uh, against a potential benefit you get. And one particular data point, uh, as we speak right now in February, is that APRA, Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, which regulates our banks and civil nations and uh, along very major financial services institutions in Australia, uh, they issue basic a warning and put those regular entities on notice that they are unhappy with the progress of a secure standard called CPS 34. That came into enforcement about 18 months ago in July 1st, 2019. And they warned the regular entities that the continued failure to make a material improvement uh, could now result in enforcement action. That's so interesting. I also really like the point you made about how you don't have to necessarily take action straight away. It's more about being mindful of the risks. You don't have to take immediate action and that's still legitimate. Whereas if you just had your head in the sand and you had no idea what was going on, then you're obviously more vulnerable to threats taking over your system. So yeah, really interesting point there. Just following on from that. So we've talked about, you know, the importance of audits and threat modeling. And we want to kind of talk our listeners through the threats that we're actually worried about. So in your experience, what are some of the common forms of threats or risks to cybersecurity systems that this whole industry is trying to protect? Great question. Uh, once again, this is an easy answer. The, the, this is very important <laughs> question. And I uh, would just start wanting to ask, you know, how much time are you going to have? I'll <laughs> <laughs> just be a kidding. Uh, uh, but it, this is not a simple question to answer. And I wanted to deal with a very uh, large number uh, acronym you really had to come across and I already introduced to you in this uh, very short uh, discussion. And uh, you know, getting the language right uh, is important. And I expect this Australia is a very small country by population, uh, well, as we inside. So our economy is relatively uh, small, but pretty advanced and uh, it's very resilient. We, uh, we are observed. So often it's a recognition that Australia is really an economy of 
lots of little uh, businesses. We don't have mega really uh, businesses, a couple of very large uh, businesses uh, compared to a more advanced economy like the US, Canada, and uh, some European states, right? So uh, educating a large uh, population of small business is no small task. And uh, the federal government has drawn a lot of attention and, and including state government New South Wales uh, to educate and support uh, small businesses in, in particular the the defense against cyber threat. So to this end, I want to draw your audience attention to a recently released uh, report. The name of the report is 2021 State of Cyber Fitness in Australian Small Businesses. And it's a collaborative research project between Cinch Security, Deakin University, and RMIT University. And that project is supported and funded by AustCyber, which is a federal, uh, independent federal agencies to uh, support a number of very important uh, cyber initiatives in the Australian economy is funded by the federal government. And so the, the objective of that report, as the name suggests, uh, is to measure the cyber fitness of Australian small business specifically. So the focus on small business, because the big under town, yeah, they're better equipped and there are a lot more to lose as well, but they're better uh, equipped to deal with those threats. And uh, to underscore the point of the important small business, the Sun economy, uh, I also want to draw your audience to the recent survey by the Australian government and uh, uh, happy to provide a link uh, to you to share your audience after the call. Um, and I'm afraid the real answer to your question in a long way around is, it depends. And um, of course, you know, I'm making a lawyer's joke and I'm sure you, and you are familiar with that um, at, at, at the butt end of that joke all the time. Uh, but the reality is, and it's very true, uh, that is often these are complex questions and a lot of legal matters of the same nature. That is simply no one size fits all answer. So I want to uh, pause here and uh, encourage the audience to uh, read those uh, reports and gain insight from those and speak to those experts who authored uh, the report. Yeah, it depends is a very, very common phrase in the legal sphere. And I'm sure, I guess, in the cybersecurity field, the threat that you're facing depends on what type of organization you are, what kind of information you hold. Turning now to our second matter for the episode, which is the lack of investing in cybersecurity by businesses. Uh, in your article, which is titled Targeting Cybersecurity, A Fair Approach, you mentioned that cybersecurity spending is often cut from budgets because it generally doesn't directly result in revenue. But you caution that executives should be prudent about cybersecurity risks because these breaches can impact customers and third parties all the way down the supply chain. Why should businesses be careful? What are the consequences or the penalties for not adequately managing these cybersecurity risks? Yeah, that's a very good question. Perhaps, um, as I mentioned a number of times in this discussion, this is a very complex, very important uh, topic uh, to, to discuss. And so perhaps a quick way to respond to your question uh, is to invite your audience to an, another um, articulation I made. In this particular instance, it was uh, E.J. Wise, which is the principal of Wise Law, and Mr. John Halliday uh, as a charter accountant. In the webinar uh, hosted by the Law Institute of Victoria, and the topic was the director's responsibility for cyber risk disclosure and cyber insurance. Now, it's kind of a roundabout way to answer your question because you were referring to the potential liability from the lack of action, right? 
And it could be that, say, uh, maybe they decided to do nothing because they investigated that step before. So, of course, being a legal professional uh, in your uh, organization, you know, no one should jump to any conclusion. Um, you know, even uh, should not be given until proven. But unfortunately, that is easier uh, said than done. So, so my discussion, uh, EJ and, and John, is to really look at you know, what is the obligation for disclosure? And that's not for cyber matters, of course, in all line of business. Uh, disclosure is important, and um, particularly informing uh, the investment market. And also the other people might be impacted. And uh, the, the time in disclosure and the, the extent of disclosure is important uh, to enable or sometimes disadvantage the others for taking appropriate protection for themselves, right? And and so, so in our uh, particular webinar, we draw on a, a recent example, recent in terms of uh, that um, lawsuit, uh, or actually not even lawsuit, is a prosecution is still in front of court in the US. And that particular situation is a, it's indictment against uh, Mr. Joseph Sullivan, uh, who was the former uh, Chief Information Security Officer Uber. They were charged uh, with obstruction of justice and concealing a felony. And uh, some of your audience might be familiar with that uh, incident where it was alleged that uh, he failed to disclose uh, a alleged uh, cyber attack against Uber uh, back in 2016 and essentially uh, denied that ever occurred and, uh, and um, pretend there was a organized uh, penetration testing against Uber. Um, as I say, I shall not speculate, and no one should speculate on Mr. Solomon's uh, conduct or, or the circumstances. What I can't uh, quote is from Mr. Solomon's defense lawyer citing um, the, uh, the defense where they would demonstrate uh, in court uh, that uh, Mr. Solomon was simply doing what he was instructed by his former boss and former CEO of Uber. Now, essentially, the premise is that, uh, you know, he, he is no uh, villain here. He's a victim. I mean, if you're doing what your boss tells you to do, um, what else? I mean, you are going to lose your job otherwise, right? So I would probably uh, explain that one of the ways that uh, can help in this sort of defense, uh, which is I uh, explore in my webinar, uh, is to use a structured cyber risk communication method uh, so to explain the the judgment based on balance of risk and benefit and one of the methodology I'm a little bit familiar with uh, and practice is called uh, is called a fair methodology because nothing to do with fairness <laughs> it's a plan of work it stands for factor and us information research so it's a methodology one of which is recognized by NIST uh, to help that particular uh, in our process is to basically put a dollar value on cyber risk. So a business manager rather than technology can explain to the stakeholders such as the board, the regulator, the community, or in fact, in front of the judge uh, in this case, you say uh, the decision was made because we don't believe the harm was sufficient to make the disclosure. Yeah, it's so interesting seeing even big organizations like Uber. Um, I guess cases like that one really display how important it is for directors to keep up to date with changes in the law and changes even in society with the shift online and the increased use of digital technologies. It's so interesting to see the way their responsibilities are changing. 
Yeah. And just on that point, it's kind of mirrors what we were saying before about you prepare your institutions for floods and bushfires. And we have insurance or insurance is so central in lots of different aspects of our lives. So it comes as a surprise at times that cyber insurance is not often invested in as much compared to other industries. So interesting insights there. Moving along now. So We've done a bit of research. We've understood that there are some new regulations in place in Australia put into place by APRA. So for our listeners who weren't aware, APRA stands for the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. So they are an independent statutory authority that supervises institutions in the banking, insurance, superannuation industries, among others. And in November 2018, so a few years ago, they released some new standards So to ensure or to improve the adequacy and sustainability of information security systems in certain institutions. So we wanted to ask you a bit about that, Denny, if that's okay. What are, so the regulations are called the Prudential Standard CPS 234. Can you explain to us a little bit about what that is and what the requirements are under these new regulations? Yeah, thank you very much. You're absolutely right. Uh, 234, and I actually mentioned in passing earlier on that one example, uh, that uh, is an unusual standard for APRA because APRA's primary focus is financial stability in the economy and primarily focus on capital management and uh, that uh, well-known uh, stand, global standards such as the a Basel Accord uh, that making sure organizations are sufficiently capitalized uh, so they can be, uh, they can be resilient against uh, economic cycles and uh, unexpected events, right? Including cyber events. And CBS is, is one of the probably the only standard in APRA uh, portfolio standard specifically focusing on cybersecurity threat. And the rationale uh, given is that cyber threat have become increasingly as we uh, already observe and the uh, minister draw attention to the impact uh, on the economy. It can literally cripple uh, economy because if uh, critical infrastructure like food security, uh, power, or water supply uh, attacked, which could have been attacked and crippled, uh, it can have a catastrophic uh, impact on the economy without a physical war uh, launched against Australia, right? And it become really the notion of the cyber war. Um, coming back to 234, uh, bigger background, uh, as you mentioned in passing, uh, it the enforcement of July 1st, 2019, about 18 months ago, and thus EPRA as uh, sending out a warning to the record agency that they are not happy with the progress of in, uh, compliance based on the observation, right? My research uh, in the T3-4, I argue that T3-4 is one of those unusual standards that made cybersecurity business problem. Uh, T3-4 is a very short uh, standard. It's only considered 36 paragraphs and uh, 12 of which are just definitions. So there's only 24 uh, paragraph that uh, you can make a compliance effort uh, against. And uh, one of the particular paragraph is to make the business board, uh, in addition to executive management, directly responsible for suffi- sufficiency of their security capability. Now, I want to unpack that a little bit. Um, because most people expect uh, the reason to be that um, it's, it's a job of executive management to manage the operation of, of the organization, the business, right? That's why I call executive management. And the board simply set strategy. What could a board really do anything 
about uh, operational risk management, such as the cyber risk management. They can't go and you know turn things on and off and then tell people you know uh, have a strong password. It's not the job, right? And what TC4 we uh, said as at least in my interpretation uh, is saying this no longer sufficient to simply make a good effort. Some of the, the activities mentioned, you know, uh, encourage you to have strong password and things like that. But really have a management view or understand the potential liability the organization will be exposed to by looking at the risk posture and also looking and challenging the decision in making particular investments such as control. A lot of those, as I mentioned before, it could be a well-intended decision to do nothing because they might fail, uh, such as enforcing very strong password on people who can barely deal with the technology, such as you know, some of the uh, more uh, aging population in the community. It might turn, turn them off and they would not actually use the service. You could make it worse, right? And that's a really a difficult dynamic for a lot of management to deal with. And what Tushiro said is, it is good that those analysis and efforts are made, but it's not sufficient just simply making that. The board must making sure the effort is sufficient and the specific language used in the standard is security capability commensurate threats. And that's a direct extraction from the standard. And, and I would draw your audience's attention to one of the paper I published uh, Title CPS two three four will you comply? And also one of my uh, presentation in a uh, conference a couple of years ago now in Australian Information Security Association Cyber Conference twenty nineteen. And the presentation titled "Capability Commercial Threat" uh, because that was as mentioned just now uh, is exactly the term used in the standard. And so I'm going to leave it at that. And that, that does line the challenge is that the board allowed are uh, now uh, being uh, compelled to, to deal with their difficult uh, business challenge. We have to get understanding of the implications of security threat to the, to the business over and above technology. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you've mentioned lots of links and um, articles throughout this session today. So we'll make sure that we can make that accessible to our listeners. They want to learn a bit more about these guidelines. But just following on from that, you've expressed a bit of hesitancy or some analysis on these regulations and the ramifications of them. You identify that a key challenge in preparing for the compliance with these standards is the lack of prescriptive compliance guidelines. So how exactly can entities comply with these new regulations? What kind of steps do they need to put into place? I want to just say that I don't claim to be expert in teaching for anything. APRA is the only entity can really uh, certify an organization against the standard. Uh, as a certified auditor myself, uh, this is not a remit uh, APRA uh, delegating to any uh, uh, audit organization. Um, but uh, people uh, like myself, like myself, can assist organizations uh, in uh, interpreting the standard and demonstrate the readiness. And this is what Apple joined attention to is they felt that ethics is not insufficient. But let me answer your question directly. Uh, so I started off in a previous response in the how the business board are now uh, understanding uh, and being impressed on very strongly by APRA of their direct obligation to ensure sufficiency of the assets. It's no longer sufficient to simply making an asset. They must measure uh, the asset uh, is proportionate uh, to the threat exposed. So if you're a corner store, they probably do not need to make as much asset or provision. And, and uh, unlike 
uh, financial service organization um, such as Superfund that um, you know, uh, uh, look up a lot of asset on behalf of loan members, right? And of course, our banks as well. And that concern and frustration by the business community, uh, and because it's a new challenge to business community, um, is expressed in uh, quite a, a unusually high response to the draft standard uh, CBC4 in early 2019. It was very, a very short consultation cycle, around six months, and there were 39 uh, submissions. And so there's a lot of people had a lot of things they want to say about it. In fact, it is such an important topic. APRA had published a written response to those submissions. Uh, not all the submissions are publicly available, uh, but some, some were republished by some of the respondents. And, uh, but in the April's published response, uh, we don't know the exact question put to them. Uh, they draw attention uh, to two common questions. And one of the two, I think more uh, relevant to this session is to seeking guidance on the materiality of cyber risk. Or I think this is, uh, as all you might put to me early on, uh, is what will be considered a lack of prescriptive compliance guidelines. And, the relevance of the question is, if I can play a pun on the word, the material relevance of the question is that when a board is tasked uh, to be accountable to the regulator or sufficiency asset, well, the sufficient part is really a materiality consideration. You know, how long is a piece of string? What, what is enough? Uh, they run a the business, they make a judgment. And so a lot of respondents ask Apple uh, that uh, can that would provide a guideline of, you know, what sufficiency meant. They know about the threat because it, as it's, uh, we started to come about threat modeling. They know about the capability. They fund those risk programs. What they mean by sufficient, they make a judgment, obviously, is sufficient because that's the program they run, right? And Apple has said very clearly in the response that they will not provide a specific material guideline. And my interpretation is that APRA is really saying, and they uh, can make clear of their intent uh, in other uh, publications, that the onus of determining materiality of cyber risk is the responsibility of the board. So on this note, uh, I want to also join uh, the audience to a new paradigm. The Australian Signal Directory are uh, encouraging their Australian community to take notice of, right? And um, not a lot of people really heard about um, Australian Signal Directory, uh, often known as ASD, the organization, like similar to NSA in the US, that are responsible for technology standard uh, to secure the nation, nation security. So they, they really are standard body and uh, to, to help them tell the others, agency what to do. They're, they're not like this, they don't just a standard, they actually do enforce it. And one of the tools they do um, is they publish an Australian-specific standard called the Australian Government's Institution Security Manual. And they have a specific audit program called IREP, uh, stand for Information Security Register Assessor Program. And what the ASD doing right now is to explain uh, to enjoy attention to that standard uh, of how enable organization to apply a risk-based approach in cybersecurity. And I was speaking on uh, on this very topic in in an upcoming uh, conference in uh, in ASA CyberCons in in Canberra as well as in Melbourne. So hopefully some of your audience uh, can join me in in that discussion to better understand uh, how they can 
learn from ASD approach, uh, learn from, I, uh, from the IM standard, uh, learn from the IRA program to help them to navigate this very challenge to ensure that they decommensurate the threat based on the risk assessment, based on the threat analysis. Yeah, and it's such a rapidly changing and growing field. So it's very interesting to have these discussions. Thank you so much for your time today, Denny. You've mentioned a heap of resources that we'll hope to publish that our listeners can look into if they're interested. You also mentioned that you are attending and speaking at a couple of CyberCon conferences. So we encourage all of our listeners to keep an eye out for those. Where can our listeners find you if they'd like to get in contact, Denny? I think the best way to connect with me is probably via LinkedIn, uh, as most of my uh, publication are published through my LinkedIn profile. And uh, the other good resources, uh, also you can link it through my LinkedIn profile, is uh, the senior chapter of the Fair Institute, where our community focuses on the practice of the cyber communication to assist their organization uh, to transition to this risk-based um, cyber risk management approach. Well, thank you so much for your time. We've really enjoyed this discussion and we will see all of our listeners on the next episode of our podcast. Thanks, Great. Thanks for the opportunity to speak.